Let's just pray. Father, we do thank you for the momentous days in which we live, Lord. Father, will you please just make us urgent, Lord, in our prayers concerning the situations that are before us as a nation. Father, I would just lift our nation before you, that we should not get proud in any way, Lord, but that, Father, we should see that you are demanding repentance from us. Father, as we study your word this morning, may your spirit just come and anoint us in wonderful power. Father, may we know, Father, that you are here in the midst and that you're speaking to us and through us. And may we find, Father, the things that we study together, may they give us peace on every hand. May they give us understanding in the ways of the Lord in our midst and in the midst of other fellowships around. Oh, Father, we just bless you and praise you and love you for all your grace to us. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We're working through several Bible studies on the subject of fellowship life. And today I want to deal with what I've called times of testing. You see, I want this fellowship life series to be based in that which is real, in total reality. Because I find very often talks are given that have no relevance to normal life as it goes on. Obviously in our everyday lives as Christians we get times of testing but specifically I want to talk about times of testing that we find that we experience together collectively as a body. I must confess to you that I don't really like some of the modern testimonial books that are out. I quite like the ones written last century or the beginning of this century but I don't like some of the testimonial books that come out today because I find many of them actually give a wrong impression of what the Christian life ought to be. You know what they do? They list all the glorious things that have happened over the last 15 years and they make it sound as if it's happened in about three months. And so you read this through and you say, well, this happened and then this happened, then this happened and this happened. Oh, it's all glory all the way along. And unfortunately, it doesn't give that which is absolutely right as far as the Christian life is concerned because most of us know that the Christian life does have glories in it, but it's also got times of testing, times of pressure, times sometimes of apparent dryness. And very often these testimonial books, they don't mention these times of difficulty that Christians go through. You know, I was uh, asked a few years ago to write a book about my testimony. And I just got a piece of paper and I started listing all the glorious things of the last 15 years, you know, down. And I started listing them one after the other after the other. And at the end, I thought, Lord, I'm not going to write this book because this would give a totally wrong impression of my life. What I did, I started filling in all the difficult times that I've been through, all the times when the heavens just seemed as brass, when it really seemed as if God wasn't listening to me anymore, that he wasn't interested in what I was going through. And I started filling those in, and then I thought, well, if ever I wrote this book, no one would want to read it. (laughs) And yet I find that we have to be based in that which is real. Certain writers do base themselves in that which is real. Watchman Nee does, you know. Arthur Katz tends to do this, but it's not every writer. Carruthers, of course, has written several books, Prison to Praise and all the rest. But, you know, I think the best book he wrote for me was the book that is called Victory on Praise Mountain. And Victory on Praise Mountain describes the problems he had from other Christians in his church that eventually led to the splitting of his church all the criticism that came against him, all the lies that were spread against him. 
And when you read that book, you see the real man coming out, you know. And you know, I found that so refreshing. And so in this Fellowship Life series, I actually want to talk about what every fellowship is going to experience. Remember, there are some people who'll be listening to the tape of this talk who find themselves in a small situation. There may be 10 believers in a little place. There may be five believers. There might be 600 believers in another place. But they all go through these times of testing. And we must face up to the fact that any group of people who want to go God's way, sooner or later, you are going to hit choppy seas. Yes, you will. There will be the storms. There'll also be the lulls when you want some wind in your sails and you just haven't got any for some reason. And we've got to answer the question, why do these times of testing come upon us? Most of you, I hope, know why you as an individual get times of testing. Well, the reason that fellowships get, get times of testing is really the same as the reason why you get times of testing. It is so that God can look at your heart and really see what is in your heart. These difficult times are times when God is proving your heart to see whether you really love him with everything you've got. It's easy for a fellowship, you know, to get together, praise the Lord and dance for joy, and you think everyone's sold out to the Lord. It's not in times like that that you find out whether a fellowship is sold out to the Lord or not. It's in the difficult times just as it is in your life, through the difficult times that God sees whether you're sold out to his purposes. These times are testing times, but they're also training times. Times when we who are the royal family of God really get knocked into shape for the life that is to come, where we are going to reign as kings with Christ. And we must all always remember that this life isn't the end of what God is doing. There is eternity to come, and the glory is in eternity. And down here, God is training us, he's giving us the equipment, preparing us for that life which is to come. These times of testing are, when you look back on them, the best times of your life. For these are the times when you make the major steps forward in your life. Someone was speaking to my wife just this week, and they'd been reading um, the testimony of Hudson Taylor you know, and the wonderful mission that he established. And he says, I find it a rule that when we are about to make a leap forward, that's the very time that we find things the hardest. Praise the Lord. That's always the way of it, because God has chosen that that will be the way of it. And what I want to do is I want to talk about four of the main testings that a fellowship will either have had or will have or will experience in some measure as the coming of the Lord approaches. And I want to, to take these four so that we can all be assured in our minds that that which we are going through is common as far as churches and fellowships are concerned. I say this to encourage our hearts because you know many people as they're going through the testing times sometimes duck out of it. Some give up, others duck into religion. It's nice to have religion around, you know, for some people because it means that you can control everything. And so they duck into religion. But for those of us who are meaning to go on with God, we will find that's not the way that God will lead us. So let's go through four of the tests that a fellowship will have to go through. And I'm going to begin with a small group of believers. Let's go to John chapter 12, <clears throat> uh, where Jesus gives a warning that every one of us have, has got to take seriously. 
John chapter 12, verse 23 to 25. Now here, of course, he has himself in mind, but it's a general rule. All right, now I'm beginning verse 23. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And that's an example from agriculture which we know well. You know, if you want your little onion and you want to eat it, you'll have a little onion. But if you put it in the garden, that little onion will die, but it will bring forth many seeds if you let it go to seeds, which will then give you a harvest. One corn of wheat falling into the ground will have to die itself, but out of its death will come a great harvest. And Jesus here, thinking of himself, will say this, I am about to die. But because of my sacrifice, the harvest is going to come. And we are part of that harvest. But death has to go with it. And then it says in verse 25, and this is a word for every one of us, He that loveth his life shall lose it. He that hateth his life in this world shall keep it into life eternal. There it is. And the word life there in the Greek is actually the word soul. He that that loveth his soul shall lose it. He that hateth his soul in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. And your soul, you know, is, is your character, is your self-consciousness, is where your thinking is, where your personality is, where uh, your emotions are. And what Jesus is saying here, and it's a warning, if you are going to indeed be my follower, then you will have to go along the path that I'm going along, and that means death to self. And nowhere will that death be experienced more than in your soul life, in the realm of your thinking, in the realm of your personality, of your character, of your emotions. And there will be times when you will know great unhappiness. There will be times when you will know great pressure because of the work of the Lord. But the Lord says, make sure you've counted the cost before you set off. You know, so often I get phone calls from little groups of people in this place or that place around the country. They're all excited, just come back from a conference, just been to this fellowship or that fellowship. They ring up and say, oh, Raj, uh, the Lord's leading us to form a fellowship. Great. And they're all excited about it. And I say, how many of you are there? Oh, five of us. Oh, that's really good. Well, it's just going to be wonderful. Will you come and minister sometime? And I say, yes, keep going for a few months and ring me later on. And you know, at first it's wonderful, isn't it? They've got five people with the same vision. They all get on well together. And there they are, praising the Lord. And then the problem starts to hit. This is very, very common. If you haven't experienced this, you will get this sooner or later. If you think I'm lacking in faith, I'm not. I'm actually based biblically in the Word of God. And t testing times are bound to come. And you know what happens? Soon criticism starts. Nasty. Here we are, well, all we want to do is praise the Lord, yet suddenly all this criticism started. Or then they find that the meetings don't go quite as they expected them to go. Some of the meetings need effort. When they first started, they didn't need effort. As soon as they got together, why, the thing just flowed. And so they sit there and they say, it's really dry today. And then the next meeting's dry, they don't understand it. But then, praise the Lord, there's real blessing. Someone gets, gets saved. 
wonderful. And then they find the person that's got saved has so many problems. <laughs> and instead of just being saved and rejoicing and then they'll make a nice little Christian, now the problem's gone for two or three years and they're stuck with this person. You know? Then, and perhaps this is worse, people start joining them, other Christians. Oh, at first it's wonderful. We've doubled in number. There were only five of us. Now a 100% increase. Now there are 10. And then they find that the people who've come in have very sticky personalities, very distinct ideas about which way the thing is going to go, very distinct doctrines. And suddenly they start looking back to the old days when there were only five and wishing they could go back there. Jesus said this, that if a work is going to start and continue, there has got to be death. And let me tell you, it's in the first few weeks, the first few months, and the first few years that we will know whether a work of God will thrive or not, and it depends how much those people are prepared to die to themselves. For whenever you get a group of Christians together, there's got to be death somewhere. Trouble is with us, we all like living too much, don't we? We like things to go our way. We like everyone to fit in with ours and to adjust to ours. But Jesus says that this wheat, this ear of corn has got to fall into the ground and has got to die and there must be that death. The death to self must accompany every work of God. And I have found it a rule that any work that is truly of God has death at its very core, the very cross of Christ that we have to take up daily. Let no one forget that in this place in Chichester, there is a fellowship today which happens to be thriving because some years ago there were one or two or three or four or five, then ten individuals who were prepared to lay their lives down. And those days, though some people look back to them and say, oh, if only we were back there, they were terrible. I'll tell you the sufferings that I went through during those days. We used to have a meeting on a Wednesday evening, all night Tuesday, I could hardly sleep. I didn't know, I was tossing and turning. The meeting tomorrow, I was the only mature Christian among the group in those days. And I used to think, Lord, oh dear, give me something for the meeting, Lord. What's this meeting going to be like? And all during the Wednesday, I could hardly touch food. I just used to turn it over. And this was the work of the Lord. And here was I experiencing death. It wasn't what I expected at all. And you know, odd things used to happen from time to time, and we didn't know what was happening. The criticism was enormous in the early days. It was bad. And then we didn't know what was going to happen in the meeting. We attracted some very odd bods who are still with us, praise the Lord. <laughs> and now they're pillars of the church, which is wonderful. But you didn't know what was going to happen. The Americans have the word freak out. We didn't know whether among the ten of us someone was going to freak out in the midst. And how would we deal with the thing, you know? Or then there was the awful meeting when there were just ten of us and we had our tambourines and we praised the Lord in the living room. And then you come into the meeting and got over the nerves. Great. And suddenly, instead of there being ten, there are twenty. And ten are onlookers. They've all come from a local church to see what's going on. <laughs> and there, in the midst of the meeting, half the meeting is just sitting there, waiting to see what's going to happen. And as soon as you did that, the young Christians completely dried up. And then you had just three of us who had to make this the best meeting we've ever had. It was death, 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 and death. 
unless there is that death, then the work of God will not succeed. And notice what Paul said. He said, I die daily. This work of God, so many get it wrong. They think it's strength. You know, that if you're strong and talented and really vivacious in God, then you'll get through. It's not true. It's death inside, which is actually the thing that will produce life in the midst. Oh yes, they were hard days, but they were days of winning spurs, you know. They were days of winning crowns and rewards for, to throw at the feet of Jesus. Most glorious days. And today around this country, there are little groups of people who feel that God has led them to establish a fellowship. And we must pray for them, because the days are difficult. For those of you in the large fellowship, please don't feel that you've been cheated. Do you know most large fellowships today have what are called small area groups? <laughs> and do you know why God has raised up those small area groups? It is because he wants us all to win spurs. You know, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your neighbors. Have you noticed that? And when you move to an area, you can't choose those who are going to get saved. You are stuck with this motley crew. And it's in that situation that God is allowing everyone in our fellowship to have the chance of winning these crowns for Christ. All of those little meetings are going to have death in their core. And they will only thrive if every one of us is prepared to go through what pioneers always go through, this death to self. Already as I'm speaking, you will know, every one of you, whether God could use you to establish a fellowship. How faithful have you been in those local areas? Just how faithful have you been? If God is going to use you to establish a work, very often in a large fellowship, it's here in the fellowship that you will be proved. I remember at university, once a year, we used to have a missionary weekend. We used to have missionaries from all over the place. One year, one chap came from Lower Bongo Bongo Land or wherever it was, and um, all the Christians turned out in the university, and we sat there. And, that, and it used to be quite dramatic. These people are in need, and we've got to get the gospel out, and so on. And then they used to ask for volunteers. Come to the front, the volunteers. And people used to come to the front, and I just used to sit there amazed. Half of them were those who you'd expect to be there, people who were faithful in the university. The other half were people who never opened their mouth in witness, never let anyone know they were Christians. And apparently they thought, well, they're not good witnesses here at home, but uh, by going to a foreign country and learning a foreign language, well, it's all different. Well, it's not all different. And, of course, the missionary societies winkle them out. They say, how many converts have you had? You know, they actually ask questions like that. In your local groups, you know just how trustworthy you are and whether God could use you to form a local fellowship. So many people think it's easy. We've even had people from our own fellowship who've gone away to form a fellowship. And they've found that it hasn't been quite as easy as they thought that it was. Jesus is saying here that there can be no fruit unless somewhere along the line there is death. I've found in every ministry that's gone on in our fellowship, there is death at the core. In the tapes, in every part of the fellowship, even in the prayer meetings, there has to be this death to self if the thing is going to succeed. Well, already you know whether you have got through that particular test. Let's assume then that a fellowship has got through that test and is now moving on. Then other tests lie ahead. And some people think, you know, the bigger you get, the less chance there is of having a dry meeting. You're absolutely wrong. 
no matter which fellowship you are in, there will be times of dryness. To see that, let's turn to Hosea and chapter 2. This is a verse that has blessed me greatly, and the verse I've given to about two people, as the Lord told me to. And it's a verse that most Christians still do not accept. All right, and I'm going to begin verse 14, Hosea chapter 2, 14 and 15. Here the prophet, of course, talking about Israel, but we can relate it to ourselves. Verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her, and I will give her her vineyards from thence. There's one little correction in verse 14 I'd like to make where it says, and speak comfortably unto her. It is literally, and I will speak to her heart. Now, what an amazing thing. First of all, I will allure her, and then I'll lead her into the wilderness, and I'll give her her vineyards from the wilderness. That's the order of things in the Christian life. And it's an order we don't like. And this allurement, you know, is very cunning of the Lord. What he does, he makes us captivated with him. So that actually we're slaves, we can't get out of it. And then he leads us into the wilderness. And any temptation to turn back, we find it so appalling behind, we can't turn back. So we're stuck. The move of the Spirit's a bit like that, isn't it? And body ministry's a bit like that. At times you think, Lord, oh Lord, it's too hard this path. Oh no, it's too hard. And occasionally you want to duck back into that which you have been in. Trouble is, when you get back there, it's so awful, you're only glad that you're in what you are in. And you're stuck. And all the problems are there, but you know full well there's nothing else for you. Do you know, I'm stuck in the same way. Praise God, I love being stuck like that. He allures us so that we're captivated by him, and then, even though the going is rough, we can't get away from him. It's a good news passage, actually. And so, you go into the wilderness and... In the wilderness, God then deals with your heart. You've heard me say before that in our fellowship, we never get ever, ever have bad meetings. Ever. Sometimes you have to receive that in faith, but generally it's true, right? We never have bad meetings. Even those meetings that people would call bad are actually designed sometimes by the Lord to really test our hearts. And you know, it's in the bad meetings that we really should be inspired to go deeper with God. For after every meeting that seems to have been a bit dicey, what we should go home into our closets, get our prayer mats out, really seek God, that we should go deeper ourselves into the ministry of the Lord. And these meetings are designed to spur us on. Isn't it funny how these meetings hit us? You're going along just fine. The anointing of God's on the meeting. You have one meeting which is glorious, another meeting which is glorious, then another, then another. Then all of a sudden, it seems as if the Lord on that particular meeting doesn't seem to give the anointing. Sometimes we blame the devil. Sometimes we blame one another. But do you know, I think the majority of times, the Lord has decided this is a time of testing. And in our hearts, we are really tested to the full. And do you know what God does through it very often? He gets rid of the fair-weather friends from fellowships. 
oh, I've had to pray in the past that our own fellowship would be pruned. You know, we need to pray it even today in our fellowship. For every fellowship, especially the successful ones, soon collect people who are fair-weather friends. Do you know what I mean by fair-weather friend? Someone who, as long as the blessing's flowing upon them, why they're with it. They're rejoicing. They're up in the lead. The minute little problems occur, a little rough patch along the path, they don't want to know. These fair-weather friends, you know. And God often uses the dry periods to sort these ones out. Occasionally, you'll have four bad meetings, say, in a row. It doesn't happen often in our own fellowship, but occasionally it does. And you know, by the fourth meeting, the fair-weather friends have dropped off. It's too demanding. They can't go on, you know, with these meetings. Oh, it's too much. We're expected to put too much in. We're not blessed enough. And off they drop. Those of us who are fully dedicated to the work of the Lord should love these meetings because I want to be with people who are sold out 100% unto the work of the Lord. I really do. I've been reading with my little boy the story of the red hen. Remember the story of the red hen who found the ear of wheat? And the red hen says, who will help me plant this ear of wheat? The cat said, I will. The duck said, I will. And the other animal said, I will. The pig said, I will. Oh, who will help me harvest? Sorry, I got that wrong. I won't, they say. Who will help me plant this, uh, this wheat? And they all say, no. Who will help me harvest? The duck said, I won't. The cat said, I won't. Right? The pig said, I won't. Who will help me thresh? No, we won't. Who will help me go to the millers and have it ground? No, we won't. Who will help me bake it? No, we won't. Who will help me eat it? Yes, we will. <laughs> and in the Christian life, there are so many of these around, except it's done the opposite way. You know, who will enjoy the blessings? Oh, we will. Who will enjoy all the glories that are to come from fellowship life? Yes, we will. Who will actually stand there when the going gets tough? No, we won't. God has to sort out these fair-weather friends. And very often it's through the difficult patches in the fellowship that they are sorted out once and for all. And we should rejoice un un well, with unutterable joy that God does this type of thing. Wormbrand records one way in which the Lord sorted out the fair-weather friends behind the Iron Curtain. Some soldiers once went into an assembly of Christians which was absolutely packed to the doors and they held rifles at them and machine guns. They said, right, those of you who aren't really Christians, get out. And half of the congregation got up and left. And then they closed the doors and they barred them. And these soldiers put their weapons down. They were truly born-again ones. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise the Lord. And they said, we love you and we've come to worship in the midst and we don't want half-hearted ones around who may be tempted to betray us. And they had the most wonderful meeting. Wouldn't it be wonderful this morning, now, if the same thing happened? I wonder what sorting out would be done in the midst. I don't care about numbers. Do you know, I'd rather have 20 people who are wholehearted for the work of the Lord than 500 and you know that most of those 500 will actually let you down if the going gets tough. We need people who with all their hearts are devoted to the work of the Lord. That's what we need. We've got to have it. And we've got to have our hearts really sorted out. For the vineyards come after that, once we've been dealt with as a fellowship. We're going through this at the moment. And I'm very pleased we're going through it at the moment. And God is really showing us whose heart is really in the work of the Lord. Do you know I described, didn't I, these, this type of Christian as the breakfast in bed brigade? Do you remember I wrote an article a few weeks ago? Uh, breakfast in bed Christians. They're all happy as long as everyone's waiting on them and the Lord's waiting on them as well. 
But the minute the Lord says to them, having worked in the field, you now come and serve the master, they don't like that so much. And so this testing often comes upon a fellowship to really show who is devoted to the work of the Lord. I just praise the Lord for the day that I think it was Mike Collins came to see me and he rebuked me, you know. He said, Roger, you talk as if you're the only one <clears throat> committed to the work of the Lord here. And he said, I want you to know that if we went through days of great unhappiness in this fellowship, Susie and I will be here as well. Praise the Lord. And you know, I just praise the Lord. We've got a lot of people in our midst and that is true of them, you know. But we've got to ask God that this testing time should really sort out who are the sheep and who are the goats in the midst. We are devoted to the work of the Lord here. And I'll tell you, I am committed to the work of the Lord here. And if for six years we go through difficult times, I'm going to be here. Not because I'm committed to anything, uh, to you particularly, but I know God's got me in this place and this is the place he wants me to be. So I'm committed to his work here. You know, and you know I'll cancel all my outside ministry to remain in this place. That is the fullness of my own commitment. Now that is actually what this is talking about, going into the wilderness. And every fellowship will go through times like that. One other verse on that. If you go to the book of Habakkuk, and to the very end of the book of Habakkuk, if you can't find it, look it up afterwards. Habakkuk in chapter 3, verse 17. And here the prophet is talking about his dedication to the work of the Lord. And you know those Old Testament prophets, did you know that the, when the people of Israel went through difficult times, they went through difficult times too. They were, so, they were really sold out to the work of the Lord right there. And look what he says in verse 17. This has got to be written on our foreheads and on the palms of our hands. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. And that's got to be in our hearts. Now God is going to bless us. It's his desire to bless us. But in our hearts we've got to say, Lord, though you slay me, yet I will praise you. And that has got to be the type of dedication. This is the type of dedication we need in the body of Jesus Christ today. All right, now there's another test. That applies to all fellowships, no matter which fellowship you belong to. So don't be discouraged. If you're here from another fellowship, you're finding the going a bit rough, praise the Lord. You'll come out with vineyards on every side. Hallelujah. And we, in our own fellowship, know the vineyards and the wilderness mixed in together, don't we? And that's a great blessing to us. Then there's a third test. And this is a test that comes in your individual life and in the life of every fellowship. And it's the test which comes when you grow up. Jolly heart. Remember I gave a Bible study fairly recently on growing up in God. Do you remember that? And I described the stages of growth from a baby right through to a mature son. Well, there is a day in the life of every baby when they're absolutely waited upon and pampered to. No matter what they do, they receive cuddles of love, you know, and they can make a real mess in the bed or on the carpet, and still they're picked up and given a nice cuddle and really loved. And they find the food's just given to them, they don't have to do anything about it, and they just live in status quo, luxurious life, right? They love it. And then all of a sudden, as they begin to grow, 
they find that things begin to be expected of them. It's a real shock. <laughs> David, uh, you will please put your toys away. <laughs> what do you mean? No, hold on, what do you mean? Put my toys away? Can't believe it, you know? David, why have you done that? Well, I've always done that. And suddenly they realize that they're coming through to the age of maturity where responsibility now falls upon their shoulders. And you know, you as an individual Christian, you'll reach that place. Oh, when I was a young Christian, it used to be so easy and wonderful. Then all of a sudden, things changed. And I noticed that things didn't come quite as easy as they did before. And God was actually allowing me to mature. Every fellowship goes through it. I think Israel's a good example of what I'm talking about. You remember the history of Israel when they became a nation? They were in Egypt. Then God took them across the Red Sea at the Exodus. Then they went for 40 years into the wilderness. And after the wilderness, they crossed the Jordan and came into the place that they longed for, the promised land. Now in the wilderness, God tested their hearts, but he also did something else. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let's see what happened in the wilderness. Wilderness wasn't all bad going. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 2 three, and four. Deuteronomy eight, two, three, and four. And they're about to enter into the promised land, and Moses is giving this. This is his last sermon. When he finishes this sermon, he will wander off into the mountain, and he will die. And that is what the book of Deuteronomy is about. And this is the words that he says. They're at the end of the 40 years in the wilderness. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness, to humble thee, to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. That's what I've just described happens in the wilderness. Verse 3, And he humbled thee, and suffered thee to hunger, and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord. Sorry, every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Thy raiment wax not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. And you know, it's in the wilderness, they had mirac miracles on every side. They just went out into the desert and they picked up the manna and they ate it. It was easy. They found that their clothes didn't wear out. Their feet didn't swell in the slightest way. They were living in miracles all the time. And fellowships often find they're living in miracles like that. And then they went into the promised land. What happened? The miracles stopped. Odd. Let's have a look. Go to Joshua. Joshua chapter 5. And verse 12. Or oh, I'll go from verse 10. And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at even in the plains of Jericho. This is Joshua 5, verse 10, 11, and 12. And they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover, unleavened cakes and parched corn in the selfsame day. And the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. 
neither had the children of Israel manna any more, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. And from now on, they had to sow the corn, and they had to reap it. Now they had to go and pick the fruit from the trees. Now the blessings that they received were in proportion to their dedication. You see the difference that occurs here. And they had to fight for that which God had given them. They had to go in and conquer the Canaanites who were in the land. And this happens in the life of every fellowship and every individual. At first it's all easy and wonderful, and then suddenly God starts dealing with your heart, and then it's through your dedication to the Lord that the same blessings come. And we as a fellowship for the last year, year and a half, have been in this stage, where now God is saying, you want blessings and you're going to get blessings, but you're not going to get them on the cheap anymore. I'm going to shake everything that can be shaken. You are going to find the foundation at times wobbling. But there's great blessing coming at the end of it. And this is part of the growing up process which all of us must come through. Do you know today God is saying to our fellowship, you are old enough in me now to have reached a new place where no more you sit back, you just expect the blessings to flow. Now I expect dedication in prayer, dedication in praise, dedication in the studying of the Word of God. And from those things, you will find the blessing beginning to flow. You see? But this is a test period, because there is that time when suddenly the manna has ceased, and you've got the first year when you have to plant the corn and when you have to harvest uh, the produce of the land. And it's very, very difficult. All right, there's the third. The fourth test I want to talk about is one which we have only had in some very slight measure here, but which, and I warn us all, we are going to get in much fuller measure in the future as every single fellowship and church which is involved with the work of the Lord is. All of us are going to experience this pressure. And here this test, it comes from satanic pressure from outside the fellowship very often. Whenever you've got a group of people who are prepared to praise the Lord with all their hearts, whenever you've got a group of people who are prepared to hold up the Word of God and say, this is the truth and the way in which we will walk, whenever you've got a group of people who are prepared to come against the principalities and powers, who are prepared to support Israel, pray for their own nation, pray for the things of the world, do you know Satan does not want that group of Christians to thrive. And a whisper comes from hell which turns into a mammoth shout, let the work cease above everything. Stop that group of Christians. They've got to be stopped. We must stop the work. It's too dangerous. We like the religious people. They get on doing their religious thing, but they don't affect us. Stop the work. And that's being shouted in our land today, right? being shouted. It's being shouted at our fellowship and more and more and more. And you will find the days will come when there will be attack upon this fellowship and when there will be attack upon everything that is the work of the Lord. Generally the attack can be seen as being in three parts and uh, you just have to study what happened after the Exodus or happened in the days of Ezra or the days of Nehemiah and you'll see what the pattern is. First of all, the attack is against the people. And generally speaking, that is from outside of the group of people. Secondly, the attack is against the vision that the people have, and that generally is from inside the fellowship. 
or inside the church. And the third one, it always follows this pattern, then the attack is against the leadership. Always comes in this way, or sometimes they occur together. Right? Now I want to deal with these three by way of warning. First of all, against the people. Now, most of us know that there is criticism against anything which is the work of the Lord. Most of us know that uh, Satan will raise up people who want the work to cease. Generally speaking, this is the first attack, but it doesn't last very long. For example, we've occasionally had meetings where Jehovah's Witnesses have come along, and because we apparently have no leadership from the front, they stand up and they're about to preach their Jehovah's Witness nonsense. Right? That's a, an attack from outside. And you know what happens? As soon as they start speaking, people know they're wrong. And you see the whole fellowship move in together. Their heads go down. Have you noticed this? There's such unity in the midst. Then all of a sudden an elder or someone else will stand up and say, excuse me, are you Jehovah's Witnesses? Are you Jehovah's Witnesses? Yes. Would you sit down, please? And then it's stopped. Occasionally Mormons come in and do it. And generally that obvious form of attack is not particularly dangerous for a fellowship who knows the word and uh, really has the vision of the work of God. But sometimes Satan will attack in a different way. And this is a way that has been tried in our own fellowship twice, and we've stopped it. But it's going to become more and more subtle. Do you know what Satan does? He infiltrates the group with false people. Right? Either false teachers or religious teachers or people who are not right as far as God is concerned. And on the outside, they have the appearance of absolute glory. Oh, the most sold-out people you've ever seen. And yet, you will know through discernment and very often through the words that they speak later on that they are from the enemy. Now, most of you don't know that we've had any of these because I've actually sussed them out first. You know, an elder has to be like a sheepdog, you know, comes into the meeting and starts sniffing. And I'm wonderfully equipped for this task, <laughs> you see. <clears throat> but uh, it was only three months ago that we had a man in the midst who felt that he was God's leader for the whole of England and that God had specially given him a revelation, and all people were to come forward and actually follow him. He came to six of our meetings and was a most charming man. And then one evening I went and spoke to him, and I said, what do you believe, brother? And he gave me a wad of material about how, you know, God was causing him to be the chief apostle of the whole world and things like this, and eventually our fellowship will be his first group of people and all the rest. And I saw him next meeting. I said, this is the last meeting you're coming to, brother, if you are a brother, you know, goodbye. And that was the last time we saw him, right? Now, there's infiltration, which was sorted out before the sheep got worried about it. But these people are going to be some of the most deceptive, and we've got to realize it. Can I give you one example? Let's go to Deuteronomy again. Deuteronomy chapter 13. And I wonder how many of you would pass this test. See, we tend to feel that these infiltrators who are coming in, that they're going to be obvious. They're not going to be obvious. You're going to need your wits about you and your discernment for these people. And here God warns about such a person. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and giveth thee a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder come to pass whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Now here's a man who actually is an evil worker causing you to go away from the work of the Lord. The trouble is, he's doing miracles. And he comes along and he announces, oh, 
um, the Lord's uh, really spoken to me, and the Lord's told me that there are three people, and tomorrow they're going to wake up in the morning and they're going to have checks through the post. £1,000 to one, 500 to another, 250 to another, and it comes to pass in the midst. Or he'll say, uh, the Lord's told me that tomorrow we're going to have a thunderstorm at 12 o'clock, and this will be a sign that uh, God is really with me in my words. And the next day there's a thunderstorm tomorrow. Right? By the way, God, good weather doesn't always mean God is blessing a particular venture. Right? And you will find that these people will come in. And they're miracle workers. Now, some people in the body of Christ, miracles are the big thing. As long as there are miracles, wow, that's the place that we'll go. <gasps> Heavens, they're getting healed down there. They're getting, all this is happening down there. Miracles, the big thing, miracles. And here's a miracle worker in the midst. But look what his message is. His message causeth you to go away from the Lord thy God. This doesn't mean he's going to come in and say, by the way, I just want to lead you away from the Lord thy God. <laughs> it doesn't mean that. It, what it means is that he'll come along, and do you know, at first he'll be speaking all the right words, just like the Jehovah's Witnesses do on the doorstep. Have you noticed? Oh, we believe Jesus is the Son of God. Oh, oh, do you? They don't, of course, but that's what they say. And these people will come, and at first they'll have the biggest smiles of any Christian you've ever seen. They'll be the nicest people. Remember that when I described Antichrist, I warned us all, Antichrist is not going to be an ogre, you know, that everyone says, oh, Antichrist! <laughs> it's not going to be like that. He's going to be a very popular man. He's going to have the acclaim of the world after him. Why, he's going to fill Wembley Stadium. They're going to be absolutely pouring round him. He will have charisma. You know, he'll be so popular. And do you know what's going to happen? You will find the religious people will be after him and the non-Christians will be after him and they'll all be saying, what a delightful man. And then there'll be the little flock, those of us who know, and we'll be saying, it's human good that he's talking about. It's not the word of God that he's lifting up. This man is an idolater. He's evil in the midst of the country. And people are going to say, you evil people. How dare you say that about such a nice man? The Antichrist is coming. Oh, yes. He's going to be terribly popular. I just warn you about that, just in case any of you are a bit confused. And this man, and these men who are infiltrated in very often, they'll be the nicest people possible. How are we going to know whether they are good or bad? I'll tell you how we're going to know. By the Word of God. And it's the Word of God that is the thing that keeps us in line. Look what it says, verse 3. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God proveth you. He tests your heart to know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Verse 4. Ye shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him. Keep his commandments. Hear, obey his voice. Ye shall serve him and cleave unto him. And it's going to be through the teaching of the Word of God that we are going to know right from wrong. Let me tell you, which is the most important, miracles or the Word of God? It's the Word of God that's the most important. Of course we're going to see miracles. We're going to have healings, hallelujah. We're going to see God really moving. But miracles are not the test of a man's ministry. The test of a man's ministry is whether he rightly divides the Word of Truth. I wonder how many of us will get through this test. Why, occasionally I hear people, they've read a book. This man has miracles on every side. And just because he has a particular belief in there, they'll follow his belief. Just because of the miracles. It's all wrong. It's the word of God that counts in the midst. To show you that, let's go to 2 Timothy 4, 
2 Timothy chapter 4 and look at the words given to Timothy. Verse 2. I say this now because this is where the attack's going to be in the next few years. And we are going to be so unpopular. It's coming before our very eyes. Those who love God's word, who will not compromise with that which is tradition, we are going to be counted as evildoers in the midst. Verse 2 of 2 Timothy 4. Preach the word, he says. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. We live in this day now. They don't like sound doctrine. They want to hear what they want to hear now. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves, teachers, having itching ears. Their ears are itching. Oh, we don't like this solid word of God. We want to hear what we want to hear. Beware of these particular days. And you know, if you read your New Testament, you'll find Paul is most rude about these men. In the book of Galatians, you read it sometime. He says, let those men who trouble you, let, they em- let them emasculate themselves. That's what he says. Right? Let them go and destroy themselves. Cursed be them. That's how he deals with them. You know, this uh, love all is not found in the New Testament. Absolutely not. So that is the attack against the people. Then the second thing is, of course, the attack against the vision. And I want to deal with this quite quickly, because in earlier Bible studies I've talked about the need of having a vision. Do you remember I said, if you haven't got a vision, you're in danger in the fellowship. A vision will get you through all the rough passages. Well, Satan sometimes comes along and he just dims the vision a bit. Creates some disillusionment in the midst. And you know, by doing that, do you see the work of the Lord is immeasurably weakened. On Friday night, the elders... I had a time of fellowship together, and it was so wonderful, refreshing the vision, you know, that God had given us as a fellowship. It was really something, and just blessed my heart so much. And we need to refresh ourselves in the vision that God has for us as a fellowship. And so, occasionally, this disillusionment, the dimming of the vision comes in. Beware, Christian, it's the enemy at work in the midst trying to stop the work. Or occasionally then you'll have people in the midst who will cause the vision to dim. Don't turn to it, but in Nehemiah 4 you have the attack from outside. In Nehemiah 5 you've got the attack from inside. And you know in Nehemiah's day they were fighting against an enemy and building the city at the same time. And because of that the people couldn't farm their land, so they were poor. And they were having to purchase grain, and so they had to make loans. Do you know what was happening? Certain of the Jews were making loans to these fighting, Christ, fighting believers and they were charging them interest on the loans. And Nehemiah says, it's evil in the midst, you people, because you're making profit out of these people who are serving the work of the Lord. And do you know sometimes in the fellowship there are people who are more interested in their own self-aggrandizement, in their own ministry, in what they want to do than what God is doing in the midst. And these people end up weakening the whole work. They really do. That is part of damaging the vision. Or the other, on the other hand, you've got, you've got those who are faint-hearted, you know. Oh, they don't like the pressure. And instead of just seeking God to strengthen them, they spread their dislike of the pressure around to other people. And people who have been strong suddenly find they're weakened in the midst. 
That's an attack against the vision of the group of Christians. And every fellowship is going to experience this type of attack. Well, we've got to be vigilant against it. And then I come on to the third, which normally follows. And here you get an attack on the leadership, right? Not just an attack upon leaders as uh, individual men, but more upon the fact that they shouldn't be leaders. And what are they doing talking like that? Heavens, anyone would think they're an elder around here. And that's the type of way that people speak. And you look at all the leaders in the work of God, you'll find they all come under this attack. Now, in a few uh, Bible studies time, I'll be dealing with the whole question of eldership, and I'll be talking about this at some length. But let's just today go to Numbers chapter 12, and let's see a very subtle form of attack. This is a fascinating uh, passage of Scripture. <clears throat> and it deals with Moses' wife, and one day I will explain to you the details of Moses' wife or wives. But uh, if you're interested, it's worth looking up the passages and see if you can sort it out for yourself. But here in verse 1 of Numbers 12, we have Miriam and Aaron, the, the sister and the brother, speaking against Moses. Moses was the younger, youngest of the three of them. And yet he was God's appointed man. And here's Miriam and here's Aaron, and they start speaking against Moses. And it's interesting, it says, and Miriam and Aaron speak against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he'd married, for he had married a Cushite woman, literally, a Cushite, very dark-skinned woman indeed. He'd married her. And Miriam is the main one to speak out. The word spoke here is feminine singular in the Hebrew. She's the one who talks. Ha! Huh, look what he's done married that wretched woman. And what it means is that she won't be the top notch in the, among the ladies now of that particular group. She doesn't like it. So she starts speaking against Moses. And Aaron, who is the mouthpiece of everyone apparently, uh, comes on and says, oh yes, Miriam's definitely right. Look at Moses. Honestly, he thinks he can do anything. That's the type of chat that comes. And verse 2 is something you'll hear in a lot of fellowships about elders. And they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. And sometimes you get talk like this, don't you? Who do, do the elders think they're the only ones who can hear from God? And of course the elders don't think they're the only ones who can hear from God. That's why we believe in our fellowship in body ministry. We believe that all of us can hear from God. Oh, who do they think they are? They're the only ones to get advice from God. They're the only ones to know the way, are they? And behind this is tremendous jealousy, actually. The issue is not who hears from God. The issue is what is God's calling upon the life of Moses? Had God appointed him to be the leader or had he not? And notice in verse 3, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. And that's put in there because it shows his reaction to this criticism. He didn't get all stirred up and worked up about this. He remained in perfect poise. Lord, if I happen to be your man, you will fight for me. Thank you, Lord. And there was the peace. And so the Lord then speaks. And do you remember, he says, look, I speak to the prophets, but I don't speak to anyone like unto Moses. And because these two were raised up against him, look what happened. Verse 10, the cloud departed from off the tabernacle, and behold, Miriam became leprous, white as snow. And Aaron looked upon Miriam, Behold, she was leprous. And that was a good way of dealing with the situation because a leper had to be outside the camp. Praise the Lord. And now her gossip, her criticism, her weakening 
would now be isolated right out there. You see, it's a good way. And notice the change in Aaron. And Aaron said, verse 11, unto Moses, Alas, my Lord, I beseech thee. Suddenly there's a massive change in his thinking. Well, this is the type of attack. Um, we won't turn to it, but in Zechariah 3, you've got a similar attack. Do you remember God had failed to stop the people? Sorry, Satan had failed to stop the people. He failed to stop the establishment of the temple. So who does he attack? Why the high priest? Because Satan knows you can't have a functioning temple if you've still got a... You can't have a functioning temple if you haven't got a functioning high priest. So there in Zechariah 3, Joshua, the high priest, is attacked, clothed with filthy garments, and Satan's there saying, look how awful he is. And God says, get out, Satan. What are you going to do? You see? Now this is all part of the attack on leadership. This last attack is designed to stop a fellowship moving forward. These times will come in the life of every fellowship if you're really moving on with the Lord. And you must expect these times. May I remind you of this, that only Satan wins if a fellowship is weakened or if a fellowship collapses. Oh, I've seen the spectacle sometimes and I've hated it every time. When I've heard of a fellowship in trouble or a fellowship collapsing, I've gone to visit them and you've always got those at the side, those Christians nodding. Well, we knew this would happen. Nod away like this. Well, this just proves our point, nodding away. The big self-righteous ones, the know-alls, who said that the fellowship would collapse anyway, and of course actually helped in its collapse. And there they are, the disaster seen on the side, and they're nodding like this. If you're in the work of the Lord, do you know any fellowship that is split, or any fellowship that collapses, or any fellowship that is in any way damaged like this, is only... Um, fruit for the enemy. No Christian can rejoice about the damage to the work of God. It's rather like our troops down in the Falklands saying, oh, well, we knew ten Harriers would get shot down. We told them. Well, that just proves it. Our own forces are being weakened. Beloved brothers and sisters, when the testing comes, may God really speak to our hearts and may we devote ourselves to the work of the Lord, that in everything we should edify one another and so further the work of the Lord. If you're a fair-weather friend this morning, will you decide? Will you go or are you going to stay? But make a decision, please, about this. We want people who are wholehearted in the vision and work of the Lord. God bless you all. Amen.